0: This is Unorthodox. I'm one of your hosts, Stephanie Butnick. Last week was our conversion episode, which is something we spend months working on. And we usually take the next week off to give our team a break and to eat some cheesecake for Shavuot. But given everything that's happening in Israel and Gaza, The frightening escalation of rocket attacks and bombings and death and destruction and how confused and scared and angry we know so many of you are. We decided to get back in the studio and do our best to help ourselves and our listeners process what's going on. For me, watching from America, I'm saddened and outraged by what can seem like indiscriminate horror. Videos of civilians running into bomb shelters in Tel Aviv or children being killed in Gaza. We on this show don't have the answers. I don't know that anyone does. But what we do have are conversations, which can hopefully shed some light, offer some context, help us understand things just a bit more. Later on today's show, we bring you an audio diary from the bomb shelters of Tel Aviv, recorded by Carrie Keller-Lynn and Elisa Landis, hosts of the podcast Us Among the Israelis. And stick around till the end of the show when Liel shares a message from all of us at Unorthodox. But first, a conversation with Israeli journalist Mati Friedman. He's a regular tablet contributor, and his latest article, Jerusalem of Glue, highlights the gap between the outward narrative of conflict and the more cohesive day-to-day reality on the ground in the Holy City. He's been on the show before, most recently talking about his book, Spies of No Country, Secret Lives at the Birth of Israel. Mati, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: How are you doing? You're in Jerusalem, right?
1: I am in Jerusalem. It's been a kind of depressing week or two. I've kind of lost track of time. But um, in Jerusalem, strangely enough, things really started here. This kind of wave started in Jerusalem. And since then, Jerusalem's been pretty, pretty quiet. So, um, you know, it's been much rougher in Tel Aviv than the center of,
2: of Israel. A lot of our listeners are confused, and I'm at least as confused as all of them are. This seems to be something that happens periodically that, you know, Hamas decides to start hostilities knowing that they're going to get the much, much worst of it. I have all sorts of moral, ethical questions about what's going on, but I actually want to start with your analysis of why Hamas does this, given that the casualties are inevitably many-fold higher for their people than for Israeli Jews or Israelis. It's hard to
1: get into other people's head from a distance. But having been here in Israel for about a quarter century now, and having been through many rounds of violence with Hamas, both waves of suicide bombings in the late 90s and early aughts, and then waves of this kind of rocket fire, and then response in and around the Gaza Strip, it's clear that Hamas has an ideology that they take very seriously, and they're actually admirably honest about it. They are not out for you know, civil rights in Israel, and they're not looking to better the situation of our Arab neighbors. They have a religious ideology, which calls for the creation of an Islamic caliphate on the ruins of the state of Israel. And they think any Jewish sovereignty here is an affront to Islam, and obviously that's not something we can live with, but I respect their, <laughs> their directness, and I think there's a lot of um, energy expended on obscuring those goals in the West. But as an Israeli, even as a you know fairly liberal Israeli as I am, you know we have to kind of look at the world as it is and understand that when Hamas says what it does,
2: they mean it. That's always been my analysis. I think that's, I take Hamas at their word as I try to take all people at their word. That said, if we're looking at reality as it is, and one imagines they are actors who look, try to look at reality as it is, it doesn't seem a good strategy pragmatically to start skirmishes that are going to incur badly disproportionate losses for your side. So I'm still curious why they do this. This is an actor playing the long game. And I think it's hard often for Westerners to,
1: Western politicians, for example, to understand a game that's this long. You know, a president looks at a term of four or eight years and not much beyond that. But Hamas is looking at generations, maybe maybe centuries. And so, by the way, are many Jews here. This is a very long story. A decade doesn't feel like a very long time in Jerusalem. And Hamas has a very long plan and they're willing to sacrifice
2: as many people or as much time as it takes to reach their goal. I still don't understand how this gets them toward their goal. (laughs) Take the 50 or 100 year plan how does periodically incurring a couple dozen casualties on Israelis and then losing hundreds of your own people and tremendous infrastructure and capability get you toward your goal in any logic? Because if you think the Israelis are like the crusaders, then you look at a crusader
1: kingdom that existed here for different forms, you know, decades, centuries. But in the end, the crusaders left and it was a matter of generations. It wasn't a conclusive battle after which all the Christians left, it was a long, a long slog. And, and if you look, you know, at every round, it's clear who has the upper hand. If you take the long view, I'm not sure who has the upper hand. And with every round that has people in Tel Aviv running into bomb shelters, in and out, and has people in Ashtud, you know, picking up the rubble and people in steroid burying kids, every round pushes that dream a bit further off. And that's disturbing for me as an Israeli, but not necessarily for a Hamas leader who you know doesn't see normal life for his people as as the goal so these
3: are two very different sides with two very different goals and and given that i'm not sure that they're necessarily wrong does this round feel substantially different in any way i mean as you said this is your third or fourth or eighth or whatever it is rodeo it looks similar to us from here. It's kind of, you know, chronic of a skirmish foretold. Does it feel different on the ground right now than previous rounds have? It does. And the difference is really in Israeli society,
1: less so than than with Hamas. I think Israel has been through worse than this round of violence, but I don't think we've ever been through a crisis like this with worse leadership. And Israelis are very divided about you know, who our leaders are, there's a real lack of trust among, you know, a pretty big segment of the society in in the prime minister to the point when you have some of the parties in Knesset suggesting that this round is being prolonged or perhaps even staged in a way for the prime minister's own political needs. I don't necessarily believe that, but a lot of people, a lot of very smart, and sane people do. And there's a real difference in the way Israelis are responding to this round and the way they've responded to rounds in the past, right? When there's a war, everyone puts down their political disagreements and rallies behind the government. That's always been the case no matter what the government, whether it was the Six-Day War or the Second Intifada or the previous rounds in Gaza, That hasn't happened this time. And that's a very serious change. And it's a real driver of the feeling of malaise and depression that you're going to find among many Israelis
3: this week. So I want to tear you away from malaise and depression for a second. (laughs) I can't believe that I'm saying this because usually my brand is malaise and depression. But you wrote an amazing piece for us, a tablet about Jerusalem, about the city which you've called home for, you know, a day or two or a decade or two for now. Basically saying that the way that we from here, from Galas, from from exile, see Jerusalem and what's going on there is deeply thwarted. And that the reality on the ground is far more intricate, far more beautiful, far more generative and and life-sustaining than anything we can imagine from our doom and gloom reportage here. Tell us about life in Jerusalem.
1: I had the opportunity to write for Tablet about this a few times before past rounds of violence, (laughs) after past. Unfortunately, this seems to be a a theme. I've lived in Jerusalem for more than 20 years now, and I think the city runs on a fuel that's very different from what it's possible to see from, from the outside. And what often gets covered, or what almost always gets covered, is the forces of disintegration in Jerusalem. But in fact, there's a very strong force of integration in Jerusalem, what I call the glue. The piece is called Jerusalem of glue, which was a great headline written by a tablet editor. The city is deeply unequal. And messed up in a very deep way and seems very fractious and is in many ways, but it's also remarkably functional. And most of the time people go to work and, and go home and the city is, by American standards, you know, remarkably safe. I can just give you, you know, throw out a number from last year, the total number of deaths in Jerusalem, violent deaths for any reason last year, including political violence, terrorism, domestic homicide, criminal homicide. The number, as far as I can tell, is 10. We had 10 violent deaths for any reason on all sides of the city last year. This is a city of 1 million people. If you look at a city like New Orleans, there were more than 200 homicides. So Jerusalem is, as of last year, 1 as violent as an American city where no American thinks there's a war. So this isn't often pointed out, and I don't mean to obscure the many things that are wrong in, in the city. There are many, many things that are wrong, but I think the glue doesn't get covered enough. So I've tried to point at the glue in order to help people understand how the city usually works most of the time.
0: Something that that feels different, you know, I'm sitting here in America, in New York. I mean, something that feels different about this round and... I've always felt like I've been attuned to these because I work in a Jewish magazine. We're sort of wondering how to cover this for our largely American audience. But something that feels different now is like everyone has a take all of a sudden, like everyone on social media, the fashion blogger, like people who probably never had heard of Hamas before, you know, like two weeks ago or people who don't quite understand what, what the Gaza Strip is, you know, like people who don't feel invested in this place or this conflict or this healing or this process in any way, suddenly all have something to say. And so you've written a lot about sort of like media coverage of this. Could you sort of walk us through sort of like what you're saying about Jerusalem? How is this getting refracted, particularly in this instance, to Western audiences?
1: As far as, you know, I've heard from my own surroundings, you're totally right. My sister told me last week that she follows, you know, yoga instructors on Instagram and pastry chefs and people who are completely unconnected to this place. And everyone has been posting about, you know, this incredibly complex place that I've been covering for 26 years and still don't understand. And it's just been amazing and disturbing to see just the, not just the the level of poison, but the level of superficiality and the leap to judgment and this kind of confidence in the opinions of people who have no idea what what they're talking about and I think it's really the internet has kind of entered warp speed it's a moment I think it's not just a moment for Israel it is and it's not just a moment for Jews which it definitely is and we can talk about it but it's a moment for the internet world that we're that we're living in where everyone is involved or thinks that they're involved in this kind of virtual mob That has been unleashed that we're feeling in a pretty serious way here in Israel. And I think other people abroad who identify with Israel, I think it's quite scary, to be honest. And I think we're in something new that we don't quite understand yet.
0: Mati, I want to ask you about a piece that you wrote for Tablet in, I think, 2014. It was called What the Media Gets Wrong About Israel. And a lot of it was based on your personal experience as a former AP reporter. That's been a piece that's been sent to me like six times in the past week. And I'm like, I know this piece. I know from this piece. It was from 2014. It's it's really, really interesting. But it's come to light because of it talks a lot about AP specifically and Hamas intimidation of reporters, particularly in Gaza. And of course, that piece has come up because of the bombing of the AP building in Gaza that collapsed. And we've heard a lot of those accounts. I mean, do you have any sort of like how do we understand what happened there as outsiders and how do you understand it as, as more of an insider?
1: I think that there are like there are two separate questions. One is the, the question of the bombing of this building, the airstrike on Thursday, and one is the question of coverage. Those are not completely unrelated, but they're pretty, pretty separate. The army says that there were Hamas offices in this building. They're targeting Hamas wherever they are across the Gaza Strip. And the fact that Hamas was sharing a building with Western news organizations like the AP wasn't going to deter the army from taking out this building. I think it's important to add that the army evacuated the building before it was, was bombed. No one was hurt. And people had time not just to get out, but to take gear out. But still, you know, having your building destroyed is no uh, is no picnic. And um, there's been a kind of back and forth about whether it's true that there were Hamas assets in the building. That does appear to be true. I've seen the army hasn't released intelligence publicly, but has apparently transferred it to the Americans. And people I've spoken to who know seem to think that The army didn't bomb the building for no for no reason. The separate question is, you know, about international coverage of of Gaza and of and of Israel. And in that piece, which I wrote for 2014, not expecting it to become what it became, was a, a window onto the Western psyche and the way the Western psyche through the Western media covers a story like this one. And my experience at the AP over six years, almost six years there, starting pretty naive and and coming out cynical. My experience was that the story can't be trusted. It's not a news story. It's a different kind of story. And explaining why that is would take way too long. But I think that we're seeing the results of this very simplistic, very moralistic, very ideological narrative about Israel. We're seeing those results explode right now online. And I hope it remains online, but it might might not. Uh, narrative where Israel is malevolent, where it's become acceptable to attribute malevolence to Israel, almost you know the job of a hat. And the destruction of the building on Thursday was a good example. The AP came out immediately with a story saying that journalists were the target of the airstrike, and that the idea was just to silence the press, which doesn't appear to be true. Certainly, AP doesn't know if it's it's true or not. But that's the mindset that I that I encountered, and that's why I left that world pretty cynical. I wrote that piece in 2014 in another essay that came out in the Atlantic. A lot of people have read them. The pieces have been resurrected. As far as I can tell, they've had no impact whatsoever on the way Israel is covered by the foreign
3: media. Now, you've covered the coverage of Israel for a while, including most recently in a great, great piece in a new journal of ideas called Sapir. We were going to talk to you irrespective of this war, but now this question has become even more urgent because in this piece, you basically look at several pieces of advice that you could give people trying to follow this conflict at home, here, stateside, in America about how to basically dance between the raindrops, how, how to understand what coverage is is kosher and what is, you know, completely kooky. So so walk us through this this conundrum, if you will. What's interesting is that the
1: piece was written before this round of violence and our conversation here at Unorthodox was scheduled before any of this happened. So I, I wrote this kind of guide for the reader of Israel coverage, not knowing that it was going to be, you know, very relevant uh, within a very short period of time. And it wasn't an attempt to address this crisis. It was an attempt to kind of address the broader crisis in coverage. I was a, a reporter for the international press here in Israel between 2006 and 2011. I worked for the AP, which is the big US news agency, the Associated Press, the world's biggest news organization, according to the AP. Reuters also says it's the world's biggest news organization. So um, it's, it's hard to know. I tried to tell my conclusions having been an insider and having followed coverage as an outsider here in Israel and kind of distill it into eight tips for reading reading news about Israel, which I hope are helpful for those people who are looking to really understand what's going on. Unfortunately, I don't know how many people (laughs) fall into that category. As Stephanie noted, a lot of people don't really seem to be interested in what's going on in a real place in the world called Israel, which constitutes one one-hundredth of one percent of the globe. I don't think a lot of people are actually interested in the facts of this place. I think a lot of people are using impressions or images from this place as ammunition in ideological wars that have absolutely nothing to do with me as an Israeli. But for those people who are interested, there are eight tips, looking at scope, looking at content, looking at the credentials of the reporters claiming to be experts on this place. And yeah, that's the piece in Sapir that came out two or three weeks
0: ago. It's so interesting because number one is does the source speak the language? And you say, Americans would never accept as an expert on America someone who doesn't speak English. I mean, to me, that's actually really funny because I'm like, I actually feel like I read a lot of things about Israel from people who have no knowledge of Hebrew. Or Arabic. Or Arabic, yeah. Like there's just this sort of chasm between what feels like life on the ground and what what we we see, even as people who are interested in, in like unbiased coverage.
1: It's really amazing. And that actually is something that clicked for me when I became, for a moment, a foreign correspondent. I was working as a local hire for the AP in Jerusalem. In the summer of 2008, Russia invaded the Republic of Georgia, the former Soviet Republic. And I got sent from Jerusalem to cover this strange war in a place I knew nothing about. And I, within 24 hours of being told in Jerusalem that I was going to Georgia, I was in a Russian army convoy invading Georgia. And I, I didn't have a map. I didn't know where Georgia was really. I certainly didn't speak Georgian or know that was a language and I didn't speak Russian and yet i was the eyes on the ground for you know the world's biggest news organization and i realized that the people around me the other reporters were more or less in the same in the same boat and here we were covering this incredibly complex story with none of the necessary tools and then i went back to israel and realized that there was a similar dynamic in Israel. I speak Hebrew. I've been here for a very long time, but I was taking orders from a bureau chief who didn't speak a word of Hebrew. And he was taking orders from editors in New York who weren't even in the country and who were assigning us stories based on what was being written by their competitors in New York. So they would read, you know, the Times story, or the Reuters story, and then order the non-Hebrew speaking bureau chief to order his Hebrew speaking reporter to write a story that conforms with their notion that they conceived while riding the F train in New York City. So the, the dynamic is removed from the the actual place in question to an incredible degree. And I think many readers don't quite understand
2: that. What about Arabic? Who in the press corps over there speaks Hebrew and Arabic? Do you? There
1: are few. I, I don't. I studied Arabic at university and would never claim to speak it which is why I would never claim to be an expert on Palestinian society. I wouldn't travel through the Arab world, passing judgment on Arabic-speaking societies without speaking their language. I comment only to the extent to which those societies interact with my own society. And I'd love to complete my Arabic and my incomplete Arabic studies at some point. But there are reporters who speak both. Often, Arab citizens of Israel are great reporters because they speak... Fluent we Hebrew and fluent Arabic. The Times local reporter, Isabel Kirshner, speaks Hebrew and Arabic, and she's very rare. In that regard, very few people answer that description, and quite few uh, people actually speak Hebrew among the decision-makers in the press corps. So you'll have local hires doing some of the heavy lifting of coverage. That was my job at the AP. But the people shaping the coverage, by and large don't speak Hebrew and often aren't even in the
2: country. One of the things that I don't understand about Israeli politics or exilic diaspora politics is, and this has something to do with the fact that you have a parliamentary system where someone like Netanyahu can sort of be prime minister for life, is, you know, I've tried asking people Netanyahu supporters like, okay, when is it time for him to go? And their basic answer is never. I mean, there are people who basically think he is the only option. That's a very bizarre thing. Even Trump supporters after 12 or 16 years would probably say, oh, okay, you know, maybe try another Republican. But it strikes me as a sense of futility that people who don't like him still say, but of course, we'd never trust anyone else ever. I wonder if you could explain that perception. You know,
1: it does feel like Netanyahu has been the prime minister forever. And sometimes when I speak to people who are a decade or two younger than me, I'm 43, they really have no concept of a different Israeli leader. And of course, I remember lots of other Israeli leaders, and it's clear to me that there will be many more. But if you're you know, 25 or even 30, you can't remember a different person in charge. I think that Netanyahu inspires a lot of animosity among Israelis, and he also ins- inspires intense personal loyalty. In that way, I think he's similar to to Trump and your suggested experiment where you leave Trump in power for 14 or 16 or 18 years and see if people are tired of it. I mean, you guys should try it and see what happens. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm not I'm not at all an Netanyahu voter. And I, I think that he is causing immense damage to the internal fabric of the country and to our political system. And it's damage that it's going to take a really long time to, to fix. But I don't think his voters are crazy. A lot of the considerations are hidden in the eyes of outsiders. And, and I'll just give you one. You know, most of us, all of us, who are alive and sentient at the right time, which is, you know, end of the 90s and the first years of the of this century remember suicide bombings. The Israeli psyche is shaped by suicide bombings. Buses are blowing up. Cafes are blowing up. Kids are getting killed. The entire country is traumatized and it's never the same. The left is completely destroyed. The peace process ends. Netanyahu comes to power in 2008 and violence subsides in a pretty remarkable way. The last Palestinian suicide bombing here was in 2008, right before Netanyahu comes to power. And last year, Israel had the fewest conflict-related fatalities in the history of the state since 1948. So Israelis looking at their situation don't always know how to explain it. They don't necessarily know how to put their finger on it, but they understand that the last decade has been Remarkably good in many ways, and they place that above other considerations, like you know the consideration of corruption or you know the considerations of um, rhetoric and unity in the populace and in the Israeli electorate. And they say, look, we're safe and relatively prosperous, precisely in the same decade that the rest of the Middle East has fallen apart. So if you blame Netanyahu for all the ills of Israeli society, and I blame him for many of those ills, you also have to give him credit for navigating. The ship of state through something incredibly dangerous over the past decade of the Arab Spring, the Arab, the great Arab disintegration. His magic seems to have expired, but um, he's earned the support of his
2: admirers. So to that question, our colleague, Tablet columnist Shaul Magid, has a piece out, not in Tablet, but in in Real Clear Religion, about what he calls the end of the, the good Israeli Arab. And he said, you know, one of the things that may be expiring is the sense that Arab Israeli citizens, or sometimes they call themselves Palestinian Israeli citizens, who have always been counted on to be or who people have hoped are loyal and integrated Israelis, or I've said, like genug, like enough, and the evidence for that being protests, being voting patterns, being other things, is that is that a concern? I'm deeply concerned about it. I mean, I think that we can handle Gaza, and it's awful. What needs to be done to end the rocket
1: fire in Gaza? But the disintegration of the internal fabric of our of our society is is very worrisome. the The pendulum swing that we've seen in the past two weeks, specifically in this regard, is quite amazing. If you remember, two weeks ago, it looked like Israel was about to form a government that would, for the first time, rely on the votes, not just of an Israeli Arab party, but on the votes of the Islamic movement in Israel. And this seemed about to happen. So you had this moment, or at least a potential moment, of incredible progress, which is the process that many of us have seen here over the past 20 years, a process of gradual progress toward some kind of integration. I worry now that many of us were too sunny when viewing this process, but it's certainly true that Mansour Abbas and and his Islamic party We're about to uh, join government in some capacity and might yet do it. It's hard to say. And then within two weeks, we've swung completely to the opposite. Or you have riots in Israel's mixed cities, people dead in the city of Lod, houses and hotels burned in the city of, of Ako, events that we haven't really seen here for a long time, maybe, maybe ever. And it's hard to say exactly where all of this is going. I don't think all is lost, just like I didn't think all was saved when Mansour Abbas was going to join the government. I think Israel's a very complicated place, and it's hard to gauge the trends in the short term. What needs to have happen is a successful end to the Gaza operation, and then an attempt to repair the intense damage that's been caused to our society. Unfortunately, I think that at present, we have a leadership that isn't up to that
3: task. So Mati, before we let you go, help us out here, because it's all about us sitting here in the in the comfort and safety of, of New York or, or New Haven. What can we do? Who can we follow? What can we read if we really want to get a hint of this complexity. Of course, you, and we will always do it for as long as you'll regale us with, with your opinions. But who do you like? What else is good? What new source or person? Is there something else that, in your opinion, needs and can be done from here? Give us a, another guide to the perplexed, if you will.
1: I, I try to follow as little news as possible. I find that the, uh, you know, the daily <laughs> headlines are just going to drive you crazy. And at the end of the day, you're not going to know anything. You're just going to be crazier than that. Uh, than you were. I try to um, just get an impression more or less of what's going on. In terms of people writing in English in the international press, I think is about Krishna writes for the Times is, is really good. And as we mentioned, she's one of the few people who speaks both languages and operates quite well on, on both sides of, of the line. For a news roundup on a given day, I check out the Times of Israel just to see kind of what's going on politically, what's going on in, uh, in terms of security. And there are other you know, interesting offbeat voices around that I've come to really rely on less for news coverage and more for kind of deep thoughts. Isabella Tamborovsky, who's written for Tablet quite a bit about kind of the Soviet Jewish experience and, and the Soviet Jewish take on the current ideological meltdown. I found that to be really, really interesting. And she's filled in a few pieces that I never got about the Western. side Shani Moore is a guy who writes uh, very kind of really smart, an area that deep dives into different political aspects of the Israeli experience. If I had time to compile a list, I'm sure I'd come up with some uh, some more great names.
0: Well, Mati, thank you for taking the time to talk with us to fill us in on what's going on there. We hope that you and everyone there are safe. And thanks for keeping us posted.
1: Thanks so much for having me on the show, guys.
0: We recorded this conversation yesterday, Wednesday, May 19th and are grateful to Mati for taking the time to talk with us.
4: Hey, J-Crew Producer Josh Cross here. In addition to the podcasts we make here at Tablet Studios, I occasionally help out on other shows. One of those is a podcast called Us Among the Israelis. It's hosted by two American-born women, Carrie Keller-Lynn and Aliza Landis. They both made Aliyah over a decade ago, served in the IDF, and built lives in Israel. And on the show, they share their stories of navigating their way through the intricacies of Israeli society all these years later. Last Monday, when the first rockets started targeting Tel Aviv, they frantically started sending me WhatsApp messages asking how they could document their experiences. The quick answer was, start recording audio diaries. Tell us what you're experiencing, your thoughts, your fears, and how it all feels. Record as much as you can safely. So they did. The result was their latest episode called A Tel Aviv Bomb Shelter Diary. As a producer and a listener, I was really grateful to get a glimpse into what it's like to be in Israel right now. It helps put a human face and voice to a conflict that for many of us is taking place on the other side of the world. I'm proud to share this episode of Us Among the Israelis, hosted by Carrie Keller Lynn and Aliza Landis.
5: Hi, I'm Carrie. And I'm Aliza, and you're listening to Us Among the Israelis. We're doing something a little different today.
6: As you may have heard, there's a war going on in Israel. It just started. There were some riots over the past month that have developed now into a full-blown situation with Hamas.
5: They've spread. They started in East Jerusalem over evictions in uh, an Arab neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, it's complicated. We don't necessarily want to get into it. What's important to understand here is that that anger and violence has spread. And it started with Hamas and the Gaza Strip. Hamas is a terrorist organization that has ruled the Gaza Strip basically since 2006. And they've been shooting rockets nonstop. And it has incited other violence as well. And this has been really scary and difficult to deal with.
6: It's been scary and difficult to deal with for people in the south of Israel. It's been scary and difficult to deal with for people in the Jerusalem area. It has only recently become scary and difficult to deal with for people who live in the center of Israel, including Tel Aviv. And what I mean by that is that Hamas has been sending rockets pretty constantly for over the last decade into the south of Israel with increased vigor over the last week into the south of Israel. But Tel Aviv usually escapes this. You can live in Tel Aviv in a bubble. We live in a bubble. It's a bubble. That's the phrase. You live in the bubble of Tel Aviv. You can read the news about all the terrible things happening in every other part of the country and be reading that while eating a croissant and sipping a latte in a cafe and having like a breakfast with your friends. It doesn't touch you. And what's been really interesting about this conflict and scary is that this is the first time really since 2014 that the conflict is touching Tel Aviv again.
5: Let's put this in context. In 2014, I think there were like three or four rockets that were shot at Tel Aviv. Over the past. Do you know
6: where I was for the first one? (laughs) Where? I was I was at the Haaretz peace conference.
5: Oh my god, that's that's rich. Um, but yeah, so there were like three or four rockets maybe in 2014 that were shot to Tel Aviv.
6: There were and a, a few more. There were there were a few. There, a there were really, definitely a few azakots. There was a rocket that like the Iron Dome hit it, but the remnants of the rocket fell on the street I was living on.
5: Yeah, yeah. So that's like really scary, but. We're talking about maybe maximum a dozen rockets. We're yeah. not talking about what has been happening over the last 24, 48 hours where it has been hundreds of rockets shot, not just at Tel Aviv, but all over what's called the Don region. And it this time feels very different. And it feels that partly because there is no government. Bibi Netanyahu is interim prime minister. We were 24 hours away from a different government. That all collapsed and fell apart as a result of this violence. It's been a lot to deal with. And so Carrie and I have been, and mostly Carrie, to be fair, um, have been keeping... Well, I don't
6: have two kids, so it's easier.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, but we've been keeping voice recordings of what this feels like, and we hope that it speaks to you.
6: All right, without further ado, let's take a little peek into the first days of the conflict in Tel Aviv. Okay, 6 p.m. on Monday. Something new just happened. Um, a rocket was fired into the outskirts of Jerusalem in an area called Beit Shemesh, which is actually where our social media manager Tamar lives. Um, so just today, we just texted Tamar to see how she's doing. She's hanging out in her mamad, which is a safe room. So Tamar, stay safe. Still in our Tel Aviv bubble. Still no rockets here. Super weird. Like, the southern part of the country is getting absolutely hammered, absolutely obliterated by rockets, something like 250 today. Um, And in Tel Aviv, I sat in a coffee shop and met friends, because we live in a bubble. It's freaking weird, we live in a bubble. It's 7.45 p.m. on Monday, and I'm about to go to a concert. First concert, In a year and a half, my friend's dad is actually performing. My friend's dad is a world famous, like top of his class, Orthodox chazan. So he's like a cantor. He's the guy who sings liturgical music, especially during prayer services. And he's performing in Tel Aviv's uh, big Philharmonic concert hall to like 2000 people tonight. So I'm going with my friend and we're gonna go watch his dad. Two interesting things about this concert, other than the material itself. First, Islamic Jihad and Hamas have threatened to start firing rockets at Tel Aviv tonight at 9 p.m., which, if true, would be a major escalation of this conflict. And the second is that Depending on how you feel about this, I am either in the safest or least safe place to be for this purported rocket barrage because I'm going to be in a concert hall that is a predominantly Haredi audience. So either I will be protected by the prayers from God or I will be exposed potentially to corona. Decide which stereotype do you want to buy into. Update, midnight, concert ended, these things go long. No rockets in Tel Aviv. It's, like, 11 a.m. on Tuesday. Got a map sent by friends, which shows, like, all the bomb shelter locations, all the public bomb shelter locations in Tel Aviv. Just sent it to a friend of mine. I noticed that the closest one to my building is about a five-minute walk. Won't really help in case of any sort of emergency. I think you have, like, 30 seconds to figure this out. Cool! Hope there's a bomb shelter in my building. guess today is a great day to find out. It's 4.41, I'm sitting in a cafe in Tel Aviv, living a totally normal life, sipping a golden latte and just read that we had our first two fatalities from rocket attacks. So Tel Aviv is a bubble and the rest of the country is living in bomb shelters. 6.23, my calls drop whenever I'm in my stairwell. Maybe that means the walls are thick enough to protect me from rockets. Building doesn't have a bomb shelter. Yeah, so I just went to a friend's house. It's uh, it's like 7.30 at night. We planned a vacation to Sinai. We did plan everything refundable because we're not totally sure we'll be able to go in three weeks should there be a war. We basically decided that if, uh, if there's a rocket in Tel Aviv, we're gonna have to cancel this trip. But until that point... <laughs> we're gonna be wishful thinking about it. Like, this is the weird thing, right? This this is the Tel Aviv bubble. I think they fired 173 rockets this morning in a five-minute period in a city in southern Israel called Ashkelon. Uh, Two people died there, and we're not particularly insensitive people. It's just that it hasn't yet affected our daily lives. We are living in a bubble, and it feels completely, quote, reasonable to plan a vacation to Egypt. I know it sounds weird. That is the dissonance. That is the dissonance of Israeli life. That is the dissonance of Tel Aviv life. And it's odd. It's odd. Okay, so we just heard two booms, which is probably the Iron Dome. It's another boom. (laughs) Another boom, two. Okay, so we're staying outside a building because we were standing in the road and we tried to find shelter, but we chose a building that is not residential, so no one's there at 9 p.m. Um, So we're staying with like 10 people, just you know, pretending this is shelter.
2: So Vana is a good place for that.
6: Excellent. Like we're, we're still discussing dinner recommendations. recommendations. I'm doing it just to get the siren in the background. No, you actually, just tell me know. about dinner, and don't don't be self-conscious <laughs> We what not use, use it. Uh. Okay. So maybe we'll find something to go into. Actually, i downstairs So this is the inflection point. What's going on here is I had just entered a shelter, a random person shelter. It was the first rocket shot towards Tel Aviv. It actually wasn't one rocket. It was dozens of rockets. I think we heard up to 50. There were videos that came out immediately after this barrage, and it looked like Star Wars. People were sitting in the bomb shelter, passing these videos on WhatsApp, and someone actually put the Star Wars theme song against it. It looked ridiculous.
5: Which, by the way, also speaks to the fact that Israelis, especially Israelis that grew up during the second Antifada, have really dark sense of humor. And gallows this is, like, humor. the only way to get through stress like this. Like, big-time gallows so, humor.
6: So true. Aliza and I were just, like, doom-scrolling all night, reading all these, like, ridiculous memes. And so this is really the inflection point. Yeah. This is where the bubble has burst in Tel Aviv. And now we're admitting this is a real conflict, and it's very likely there will be a ground war in a few days. How are you feeling at this time, Elise?
5: I mean, I spent a good year on the border with Gaza at one point during my service, and there were lots of rockets. And I'm very used to running in and out of shelters. And also in 2014, I was driving to my base with my commander and there was an alarm that like, a siren went off and we ran into the closest shelter and we came back out and the car had just been completely totaled, right? Like if we hadn't gotten out on time, like we would have both been dead. Yeah. I don't think I knew that story. Yeah. I still have pictures of the car. It was, it was kind of scary. Like it, it, the, the thing didn't fall directly on the car, but like the window was blown in. It, it, oh my like God. we would have been really screwed if, if we had still been in the car. So, Moving quickly when you hear a siren is not something that I'm unfamiliar with. What I am not familiar with is doing it with kids and it is really scary and really, it it is hard. I don't deal well with fear. Fear is not an emotion that I manage well and it is a lot easier for me to be angry. And I am trying really hard to not be angry, but it is really difficult not to be angry at Hamas at our government, at people who are engaging in violence. And it feels like the quiet that's been built for the last seven years has just been torn down.
6: <laughs> yeah, it's it's like the Tel Aviv bubble burst, but also the dream of a post-conflict Israel has kind of been burst, like an Israel that works for all of its citizens. But Elise, like to your point about feelings, um, so the way I've been describing it is hypervigilance. Like hypervigilance is what... Kids who live in homes with violence like are often diagnosed with like it's that feeling of never being able to shut your brain off like you're constantly aware. I haven't slept in the past three nights. I mean, part of that is that Hamas like doesn't respect Zionist sleep times and seems to wake us up with ro- rocket barrages every evening. But even afterwards, like.
5: Or they, say, or they say, we're going to start a rocket barrage at 9 p.m. And you're like, okay, I got this. I'm And ready. you're waiting
6: around, and you're dressed, you're ready to go, and then they're two hours late, and two, you wasted two your evening. they only showed up at 1 o'clock in the morning.
5: <laughs> like, come on. Come Jeez, on. Jeez, come on. Like, <laughs> so that was last I, night. I take them, here's the thing, I take them at their word. If they say, we're going to shoot rockets, I believe them. Well, well I Rachel just,
6: and I half took them at the word. We realized we had no food here. So Rachel's a friend of Aliza and mine, and she slept over because her building shelters currently being used as a like, storeroom for one of the apartments. And Rachel and I realized we had no food. It was like 8.45 and we're like, they said nine, screw it, let's do it. And like, we ran to the supermarket, we clocked it. We were in and out in seven minutes. And we made like a delicious curry. But yeah, no, that that's the point is like we're living in this like very weird reality where no one's really sleeping. Everyone's antsy. No one can really focus. Like people aren't really getting anything done. A lot of us don't actually feel scared, you know, not like scared, like something's really going to happen. But even while I say I, I don't really feel scared, I mean, I feel like I'm in this malaise. Like I've been feeling this malaise since it started where I'm afraid to really do anything. I'm afraid to leave the house just if. I'm not in panic all day, but I feel unable to concentrate.
5: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And you know, it hones in on something for me. You know, a lot of people will present this as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But I really see this as a civilian terrorist conflict. And I'm angry on my behalf. I'm angry on other Israelis' behalf. That's Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis and Christian Israelis, basically all Israelis. But I'm also really angry on behalf of the Palestinians, on behalf of the Palestinian civilians who don't support Hamas, who are stuck living in Gaza and... Mm -hmm are suffering the consequences of Hamas aggression 10,000 times worse than what we're going through.
6: Well, 9.06, uh, just had our second rocket attack in Tel Aviv um, in a shopper of like, tons I'm Gonna guess there's a war going on tomorrow. Nine fourteen, still here because the third siren blast went off. Super hot, super sweaty. There may be like forty strangers in this forty strangers in this room, two dogs, one very sweaty carry. So I was supposed to meet a friend for dinner and I ran into another friend in the street when the rockets, when the, the alarm went off. And um, before it did, the friend and I were talking about like, all right, like where should, where should I take this other guy to dinner? And he was like, I recommend this restaurant called Port Said. And I was like, you yeah, can never get a table. And he's like, but what about the situation? And I was like, the street is packed. And we walked out of the shelter like eight minutes after the first attack. He was like, well, you we a table at Port Said now. So Tom, if you're listening, uh, we could have had a great dinner at Portslade, but Islamic Jihad and Hamas had ruined it. Socializing in the time of rockets. I was supposed to meet a friend about an hour ago. The rocket started then, so we both had to jump into bomb shelters about a street apart. We've been trying to get out in between each break and get to each other, but the sirens keep going. And so now I'm finally going to meet him at his bomb shelter instead
5: of a restaurant. So, among the many indignities, wrecked upon us this evening. Here I am at 2.45 in the morning, finally going to the bathroom from nerves, from exhaustion, from frustration, all of those fun things. And of course, the alarm goes off. So, mission abort. Get up, collect the husband, collect the teenager, collect the baby, not in that order, and exit the house. And just as I leave, I pull the door shut behind me and we hear a click. And of course, there are no keys outside. We don't have a key with the neighbor. There's no key with the guard downstairs. So I start calling 24-hour locksmiths. Um, Most of the lines are busy. Evidently, there's a rash of people who are now all locked out of their apartment in Tel Aviv because exactly what I did. Finally managed to get a hold of two different ones, order them both. Yes, I totally double paid like a fryer. I paid one who actually showed up and I paid the other guy who I told not to come eventually. Um, Showed up relatively quickly with a little plastic thing that he wedged into the door just to open it, which also means that, you know, unless you actively lock your door, it's very easy to break into. Um, And then he charged me 600 shekels for it. (gasps)
6: Okay, so it's 11.30 on Tuesday. I just got into my apartment. This was a weird night. So, (sighs) I started by, okay, it's a siren in the background. Of course, like, wanna know what kind of siren? Sounds like a normal siren. I started the night by planning a vacation to Sinai with a friend. Doubtful we're gonna go now. Um, And then I was on my way to meet another friend for dinner. And I was waiting for him at the corner of Rothschild Boulevard and another street. And I'd run into a third friend. And I was chatting with this guy. And I was like, you have to meet my friend. He's, like, coming up now. Like, you might want to hire him for your new company. And all of a sudden, a siren goes off. And so third friend and I go find a shelter in a random building with, like, 20 random strangers and a couple of random dogs. And my other friend is sheltering in another place. And basically, it took about an hour to be able to leave the shelters finally. Um, and then the friend and I met up and we picked up food and had dinner at his place because there wasn't really much else to do. Like I wasn't going to go bike home for 20 minutes. I wasn't going to take a cab for 20 minutes. I didn't know, I didn't know if the rockets were going to come back. So it actually was like the most reasonable thing. First of all, I really appreciate all the messages I got from friends in the States and friends in Israel, like asking if I was okay, like, I sent a bunch myself too like it was it, it's just one of the things that I actually love most about this place is how much people care especially in times of crisis like the people who opened their home and found people on the street and like pulled them in and said come here there's a shelter here you know the people who reached out to me and said do you have a place do you have a shelter do you need to come here I was sitting with my friend friends called him and said hey like the plan is we're gonna go to our, our other friend's house if like it happens again because I know you don't have a shelter in your building it's amazing it's amazing how people care but I was also really distracted the whole night. You know, we we didn't have, like, the best catch-up because I felt like I was completely not focused for understandable reasons. Yeah, now I'm back in my apartment and I'm, like, afraid to shower because I'm so sticky. I don't want to be in the shower when the siren goes off and I have these huge, beautiful windows in my apartment that I don't want to, like, shatter and, like, kill me. Um... It's a weird night, and they called up something like 5,000 reservists today. I know people got a call. Um, I think we're going to go to a war, and that's upsetting. It still feels surreal. Like, it emotionally doesn't feel real.
5: It hasn't settled in yet. I know that I should be focused on the pain and suffering that is going on in this country right now, and angry over what I feel is a completely inadequate military response to the hundreds of rockets being fired at our homes tonight. But mostly, I'm just really fucking angry that they completely ruined my sleep training, like just destroyed it.
6: So it's 2.06 on Wednesday. I'm home. Yeah, I'm feeling a malaise. It's like, on one hand, it's like, well, nothing's really going on, but that's also not true. That's just the Tel Aviv bubble. There's a lot going on. The South has been pounded, like, absolutely pummeled this morning. Hamas shot a new kind of weapon. They shot an anti-tank missile that they got from Iran a couple of times in the South. And if I heard correctly, the problem, one of the problems with that is that the Iron Dome is not effective against it. Um. Smart people died this morning in the south. Some people died in Gaza, too. I think we're in a war. Yeah, so that's what's going on. Both not much and a lot. See what the day brings. Apparently, Hamas has said between six and seven there'll be more rockets. I have therapy in like a minute, so I'll be doing that with uh, limited privacy because my friend's gonna come over with her two dogs because her building's her building's bomb shelter has been a storage facility for one of the apartments and the apartment did not agree to clear it out over the past day. Um, so they all had to like go find other places to sleep, so she's gonna come sleep on my couch. And that's it. Super weird. Shelters are uh, storage facilities and people don't seem to want to clear them out despite the situation. Because you know, just an inconvenience. Rockets are just an inconvenience.
5: It's 6.19 and I'm trying to debate whether or not to bathe the baby. Um, But I'm nervous that if I do, we might get caught in the middle of a rocket attack and then she'll be wet and slippery and I could drop her while we're running to the bomb shelter. So I think she might just have to go to sleep dirty. Great.
6: So it's two thirty on a Thursday. I'm in the kitchen of a restaurant because I was on my bike on the phone with my parents, saying, "Don't worry, Hamas only text helves at night." <laughs> okay, awesome. And uh, we just heard like booms. It's 7.30. we were just on a call with our production team and a siren went off midway, so Elise and I had to just run to the shelters. Um, Day two of Rockets in Tel Aviv.
5: Just came back from the second run to the bomb shelter tonight. It's really strange, partly because there's something so peaceful and quiet about the outdoors in Tel Aviv right now. There's none of the usual hustle and bustle of night city noises. Feels almost like it's a holiday when everybody is either at home or visiting family and it's quiet. But this isn't a holiday. It's because everybody's hiding in bomb shelters and staying home because they're afraid of dying. It's
6: nine o'clock at night on Thursday just saw some two really messed up things um first one the news was there's a gang of armed Jews um congregating in this area called Lod where there have been a lot of Arab riots and that they're planning to go mess things up tonight meaning attack Arabs Arab citizens of Israel uh the second is there's this rumor going around that there's a gang an armed gang of Arab citizens uh who are planning a quote pogrom in an area of Tel Aviv called Florentine tonight um don't know what's gonna happen with either, but the fact that these things are, are being discussed and they don't sound crazy is in itself a sign that we have entered the danger zone. Like, we are in a bizarre world. This is not what I was expecting a week ago when I was planning to go on a yoga retreat this Sunday.
5: That's sort of just a taste of what it feels like. And I have to say, also today, I went to buy groceries and I saw lots of people out on the street walking around. It feels almost normal, not quite normal, but almost normal. And it reminds me how quickly people adapt to being in just absolutely bizarre circumstances.
6: Yes, like my parents have been begging me to consider gay on a flight and leaving Israel. Mind you, I'm not really sure there are flights that keep getting canceled. Plus, I think a flight might be the dumbest thing to do right now. Considering yeah, I the think travel is, is like dangerous. within rocket range. Yeah, yeah, the airport's within rocket range of Hamas. And also, um,
5: most of the casualties have been people who have been on public transportation in cars yes, or in transit. Yes,
6: yes. Like stay home. Exactly, stay home. Um, it's corona all over again. But you know what I was gonna say about the banality of it? You, I think you also create these rules. Like you're like, if I if I don't step in the crack between the sidewalk, everything will be fine. And my rule has been, well, Hamas hasn't sent rockets to Tel Aviv during the day yet, so everything will be fine. You just need to be home by dark. And I was on my way to physical therapy today. I was on the phone with my mom who was saying to consider taking a plane, bring Aliza, bring her family. She texted you too about it. And I was like, mom, I gotta go because there was an alarm. I jump off my bike. I leave it on the sidewalk. I run into a restaurant, which was the first door I saw open. They, like, usher me into the back of the kitchen. I stand in the kitchen with, like, 10 strangers and we hear like three big booms and like we had a few minutes and we just leave and go on with our days. And that's that's the bizarreness of this reality.
5: Also, by the way, just like total side note, how lucky are we that everybody is vaccinated in this country? Can oh God, you, can you yes. imagine what super spreader events it would be <laughs> if you ended up in a public bomb shelter with tons of people some of whom had corona. Like, it would just be... You missed
6: an opportunity there. Yeah,
5: seriously. I think one of the most unique aspects of this whole experience is actually the camaraderie that you end up feeling with the people that you end up in the bomb shelter Mm -hmm. with, right? And they're random strangers and you're all going through this trauma together, right? I've met neighbors in the stairwell. You've met random strangers at the various different random... I, I saw
6: someone try to get an apartment the first bomb shelter in was so nice that there was a couple next to me like asking for exchanging WhatsApp numbers with other people in the bomb shelter trying to get an apartment in the building like
5: <laughs> yeah but so you have this really weird social glue that is bringing people together this collective trauma experience that's making people welcoming generous kind and yet you also juxtapose that with what I think is far scarier than the rockets which is the violence that has been happening in mixed cities across mm-hmm. the country mm-hmm
6: yeah, and by mixed cities, you mean integrated Arab and Jewish populations, they're fully Israeli populations. What we've been seeing has been violence, there have been riots, there have been riots in Jerusalem, there have been riots in cities called Lod and Ramleh, there have been riots in Acre, which is right above Haifa, there have been riots in Yafa, which is right below Tel Aviv, there have been riots all over, there's been riots in Bat Yam, and it, primarily at first, they were Arab riots against Jewish. Citizens, and now they're also Jewish citizens against Arab citizens, and people have died. People—they're using the word lynching. Last night I was watching the news, and in an hour and a half on repeat, they played the same clip of a crowd pulling an Arab driver out of his car in Bat Yam, and they just beat the guy. He—he he was brought to the hospital right down the street to me. Yeah, he's—he's he's yeah. alive, but
5: yeah, no, he's—he's he's alive. He's in moderate condition, but yeah, it's—it's it's horrific.
6: It's not the violence itself; it's what it speaks to. It's terrifying me, which is that the fabric of this place is ripping apart. It's like Israel's working. Like, we've been looking at Israel as it's working. But as soon as you put any stress on the seam, it starts to fray.
5: I actually don't think it's any stress. I think that there are a lot of contributing factors. um, And I I actually think that we're also dealing with an immediate post-Corona world. And the mixed cities were some of the hardest hit with Corona. You had some of the highest levels of unemployment. There's huge amounts of frustration, and suddenly you have a venue that is considered quote-unquote legitimate amongst your peers to express your anger. And most of these rioters, they're young. A third of the people who are arrested are between the ages of 13 and 16. We're talking about young kids who are just going crazy. A country has been cooped up for a whole year at home, and suddenly you have people just bursting out, and the anger is being articulated in the most destructive way but i definitely think that it is no coincidence that we have this fraying that comes after a year of corona i don't think it's possible to divorce the two
6: and i don't think it's a coincidence that we have this fraying and then we have hamas capitalizing on this time to quote get involved and send rockets to support its quote brothers in Jerusalem and and I think it you know I think it's a bit of the cat and the mouse and the cat yeah
5: what's going on with Hamas I think that it is very easy for a western audience to misunderstand what's going on this is not about Sheikh Jarrah evictions this is not even about riots in Jerusalem yeah this is coming on the heels of Abu Mazen who is the head of the PA and hasn't held a, an election in 15 years this is coming on the heels of him canceling elections last May. In it again because he knew that Hamas would come out on top. So, this is Hamas's way of saying to the Arab world, we are A, the defenders of Jerusalem, and B, to the Palestinian world, we are your guardians. We are the party that you should have fidelity to and obeyance to, and this is an internal power play.
6: I think the C is, in a year where we had the Abraham Accords and Israel's, like, peace treaties with two Arab nations it never had formal relations with, I think it's also saying the Palestinian issue is still relevant. Yes. Because that was the line last year is that the Palestinians aren't relevant anymore. Let's move on. And so I think A, B, and C, that's what's going on. It's not really Sheikh Jarrah. Sheikh, Sheikh Jarrah, for all of the commotion, it's six families. It's six families. It's an excuse.
5: And I actually think that as much as Hamas is largely motivated by internal Palestinian politics, I also think that the great legacy of this flare-up or war or operation or whatever you want to call it is going to be that Bibi Netanyahu stays in power. We were 24 hours away from a new government that would not have included Bibi and would have included an Arab party inside the government for the first time. And it has been blown to smithereens. It is over. It's done. It's And this, I think, more than the violence, more than the rockets, more than even individual loss of life, and this, a horrible thing to say, I think the great tragedy of this is that we are going to be facing political stalemate yet again, and that is going to impede Arab rights more than anything else.
6: So speaking about inflection points, I think what Hamas did was created a situation where Israelis just woke up as security first voters for the first time since really the second intifada. Last election cycle was all about Bibi or not Bibi and the Khoredim. The elections before them were more about the economy and cost of living and what it means to share the burden among the middle class. I think we now have returned to security first voting. It feels, okay, this is gonna be a big statement. I might come to regret it. It feels a little bit like the mid-1990s and someone just shot
5: Robin. My view on that is that that's an overstatement, but it doesn't feel that different to me from the early aughts when the antifada began.
6: Listen, it's probably an over-exaggeration. I hope it's an over-exaggeration, but the fact that I could say it and it doesn't sound totally implausible and that there's a non-zero chance that we might look back a decade from now and say, Um, that this was the Rabin moment. This was the moment that killed the peace process. This was the moment that killed um, Arab integration into mainstream Israeli Knesset politics. This is the moment that killed this vision of Israel, where everyone actually makes it work for a country, you know, which serves all of its citizens, that I find deeply, deeply deflating.
5: And scary, which is a feeling that I don't like to have. (laughs) So Elise, See you in the shelter? Yeah, unfortunately. I'll see you in the shelter.
6: That brings us to our number of the week, which is? 1,400 and unfortunately counting. Which is the number of rockets that Hamas has fired into Israel in the past week. From us, the shelter bound. See you next time.
4: You can find Us Among the Israelis wherever you listen to Unorthodox. They've covered everything from the history of the Israeli startup nation to how Sephardi culture reflects the real culture of Israel today. That episode features today's Unorthodox guest,
3: Madi Friedman. J.Crew, Liel here. Look, these are crazy times. The square in Gan, down the street from my grandmother's house where I grew up and went for the best chawarma in the world like three times a week, was just struck by a rocket and a man was killed there. A building three blocks down from my father's house in Givatayim took a direct hit and my friend Dani's sister went grocery shopping in Ashkelon and is only alive today because she ducked at exactly the right moment. And if that isn't crazy enough, Every time I tune into social media, I see a torrent of trolls, including so many famous and smart and sophisticated people who should know better, express ridiculous and ignorant views about Israel and the conflict. I assume many of you are in a similar place. I know this hasn't been an easy week. And I imagine that like so many people right now, you have one question. What now? What what do we do to fight all this? I can't tell you what to do. No one can. But in true Jewish fashion, I could tell you what not to do. So first, let go of the outrage. I know it's hard when you read or see stuff that makes your blood boil to feel anything but bubbling anger. But shaking your fist at the latest tweet or post or news story and shouting, Can you believe this? Doesn't do anything for you or for anyone else. Second, put aside those fact sheets. You may feel like the right response to blatantly false information is good and accurate information, which is a normal and wholesome human reaction. It's also, sadly, really wrong. Because what we're seeing right now is so maddening, precisely because, for a whole host of very complicated reasons, the discussion isn't about facts and figures anymore. It's about feelings. And you're not going to convince anyone who doesn't already feel the same way you do about Israel and the Palestinians to come around to your side. And besides, convincing anyone of anything isn't your job. You aren't the Secretary of State. You're not the Prime Minister of Israel. You're not a senior diplomat on this side or that. You're a teacher or a dentist or a cashier. You're a mom or a brother or a grandma. And you have your life to live. And that if you ask me, is the best thing that you could do right now. Take all the energy you've been investing in arguing with people on Facebook or fuming about why the Democrats or the Republicans fail to solve this problem or that, or expecting some defunct organization to live up to its promise and step in, or arguing with colleagues in the office about who fired first and why. Take all that wasted energy and invest it in your life, in building something Jewish, And communal and generative, even if it's just with three or four other people you know and love and trust. Now, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that thinking small isn't the way to go when the problems are so big. You're going to say that we need something that can go viral or be scalable or any of the other buzzwords that resonate with people these days. I fully disagree. We're Jews. We're not about going viral. We're not about getting too big to fail. From Moses to Rabbi Akiva to Joey Ramon, we've always been the outsiders, the small band of weirdos, huddled on the outskirts of society and just doing our thing. We're not about huge crowds. We're about gathering in small quorums or minyanim. We're about Shabbat dinners and daily prayers at shul together and taking every opportunity we can and holding space together and together building something meaningful. So, Maybe it's putting together a reading group or a study group. Maybe it's inviting a few friends over for Shabbat dinner. Maybe it's organizing something locally, something that feels sustainable and nurturing and life-affirming and good. So here's the deal. Yeah, these are scary times. And you may feel the need for someone, someone in a position of power and knowledge and wealth and influence to sweep in and lead the way. Here's the good news. No one's coming it's all in you. It's all on us. And here's the better news. We could do it. Because honestly, literally, we're all in it together. And we mean it. The greatest pleasure, the greatest privilege of those of us lucky enough to work on this podcast is knowing that we're in it together with you and that you're in it together with us. So if there's anything we could do As you try to figure out the next steps that work, not for the world, not for Israel or the Palestinians or the Biden administration or Donald Trump or anyone else, but for you, for your friends, for your neighbors, for your community, anything we could do at all, please go on Facebook, pick up that email or that phone and get in touch. And with that, shalom, friends.